we may be getting fixated on these slight differences between a state policy lead or a federal policy lead, when in reality, it's just better to have some somebody lead, right? Mm. You know, the economists can tell you what makes sense, you know, economically, but if there's just political issues going on, then that may be the last hurdle that the economist hasn't figured out how to get over yet. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I'm Shane Moss. We have a fantastic guest, another guest from the University of Tennessee, uh, kind of sponsored by the One Health Initiative, all about kind of getting information out to the public about One Health policies and all of the interdisciplinary efforts between so many different fields to talk about the intersection of, of uh, humans and animals and the environment and and uh, zoonosis and biodiversity loss and all of the, these topics that we've been sharing about once a month or so uh, uh, through much of this year. And so we've been getting a lot of great feedback on these episodes. I'm glad you're enjoying them. And my guest today is Charles Sims. Charles, can you introduce yourself to the uh, good people listening? Yeah. Hi, everybody. Uh, Charles Sims. I'm a an economist by training. So I have an appointment at the economics department at the University of Tennessee. Uh, and I also have a, another appointment in the Baker Center for Public Policy, where I spend a lot of my time taking my economic toolbox and applying it to public policy questions, uh, some of which are about One Health and then some of which are about other issues related to energy or uh, climate change and things like that. So how did you how did you get involved in this in the first place? Because this is uh, this is as we've have we've been having different people in different fields. Um, this is definitely a novel one as you kind of research a lot of the sorting out the economics of a lot of the cost benefit analysis of different policies and and effectiveness in terms of environmental issues. Right. Yeah, so I mean, I got into this um, really in my PhD. So I went to the University of Wyoming, and um, the folks at the University of Wyoming do a lot of these things. They're they're usually trying to apply economics to questions about invasive species or disease control and things like this. So um, I I came in thinking that I, as an economist, my job was just to sort of put dollar values on things. That's, that's what I had been taught for the longest time, um, but as when I got there, they, they kind of opened my eyes a little bit and showed me that now what economists should be doing is kind of interacting with ecologists and epidemiologists and trying to integrate the models that we use to talk about how people make decisions in economic settings and then try to pair them up with, with some of these models that talk about how the ecosystem changes and how diseases spread and how invasive species move across a landscape and that that's that's really another important facet of what we do, and I got super into that just because I I'm one of those people that has books about different things on my nightstand. Uh, since I just enjoy tell tell me what's the 101 type basic 
undergraduate textbook on whatever it is you're talking about, and I want to go read about it. Oh, so it worked out perfectly that, for me. Kindred spirits. This, uh, <laughs> that, that's exactly. I'm. I'm. I, I mean, not that you. You certainly do have expertise, but personally, I've. I spend. Um, I. For this podcast, I just spend the majority of my time trying to learn the 101 in as many different fields as possible. And I also it's just that's that's where kind of my level of interest is as, as well, where especially as as uh, as a, a science communicator, I, I feel like there's there's sometimes diminishing returns for me and reading like a fifth book on the same ish subject, even though I will still learn more. Um, whereas going from zero to one oh one understanding of a subject uh, is just kind of more of a change. Yeah. Experts are not always the best communicators. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so cool. We'll talk about uh, what's some of your work at the University of Tennessee that you're doing. Uh, so some of my work that's in this one health area is kind of related to, uh, how markets for different agricultural commodities are spreading invasive species or spreading, uh, wildlife diseases. So <clears throat> we've been doing some work in Yellowstone, um, around brucellosis and chronic wasting disease and the elk herds up there. Um, and really trying I'm, to model- I'm in, I'm in Wisconsin and, and so the, the, there's been a lot of talk of it in the news, um, in the deer populations oh, yeah. here over, over the last, uh, month or so. So it, sorry to interrupt, but no, uh, no, no, it's, it's, I mean, it's all over the place. Subject. It's here. It's here in Tennessee too, for, for sure. Um, we had just started working up there, um, cause it seemed it was, it was moving out there earlier. And then there were some interesting questions about ranching that was interacting with, uh, with the diseases. Um, so we've been working on that. We've been doing some projects on that in the past. Um, but also doing some projects on, uh, uh, just basic disease spread, human health disease spread, um, Mm. that started up kind of after COVID, like kind of like everybody else, uh, we got interested in COVID because you're sitting around locked up in your house and (laughs) it's the one thing that's on your mind. Right. Um, so we spent, we worked with some epidemiologists to think about kind of what's the optimal level to set uh, public health policy. Uh, and, and is it either the, is it better at the local level or the state level or the federal level? And this kind of all goes back to a classic econ literature where they're trying to figure out where's the best place to manage uh, environmental policy. So should environmental policy be set at the federal level or the state level or the local level? So we were looking at that for public health. What are the similar trade-offs there as well? Um, And then beyond the One Health stuff, we're working on things related to energy, um, kind of looking at the incentives for firms to shut down coal-fired plants and looking at how uh, to manage endangered species with climate change that's starting to shift their their territories around and things like that. So I, I, I mean, economics is a nice field for me because people perceive it as economists think they know something about everything, but it's really just economics bleeds into almost everything. Right. And so you, you, you can take, you you can take your economic toolbox and analyze a bunch of different things. So I'm not the type, or I'm not one of these researchers who kind of hones in and studies this one plant or this one ecosystem. I, uh, a little schizophrenic, I guess. And then I bounce all over the place and study a lot of different things. Yeah. So, you know, 
I, I would love to hear about some of the work on COVID so, simply because um, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners uh, that not on this show, but I mean, we, we have a COVID episode like every two months or so. I wouldn't, sure. I wouldn't say that. I mean, I bring it up more often than that, but uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not covering it on every episode or anything, but it really is a, I, I've, I've found that it's a nice way to demonstrate just how many different variables and considerations and fields of research that all go into this same basic uh, crisis that we're all uh, dealing with and trying to sort out. And as, as much as maybe if you get all of your information about COVID from the the 24-7 cable news or something, it it probably seems pretty redundant and you've heard all of the same talking points by now. But I've loved being able to uh, showcase for people the uh, it, all of the kind of lesser known um, and uh, subtler research going into things that are uh, maybe not, maybe not as directly related as say making a vaccine, but a more nuanced, like what are some of the economic issues that specifically related to the environment? So I would love if we could go into that a little bit first, if that's okay with you, and then get into some of the other stuff that you research. Sure. Yeah, no problem. Um, I mean, the research we were doing on the policy question was, um, really honing in on just different trade-offs that happen if you're setting policy at the federal level versus the state levels, right? So if you're a federal agency, you're usually having to set these one-size-fits-all policies to kind of every state is doing similar things. Uh, and that could be because you're, you're, you don't have enough information to kind of tailor a policy to a specific area, or it could be because you're just worried about showing preferential treatment and some, some states get better deals than others and things like this. So there is this notion of fairness or just you don't have enough information to do anything other than just set a one size fits all policy. So obviously that doesn't work great. We kind of see this with COVID, right, where policies that may look great for New York don't look so great to North Dakota or Idaho or somewhere else. So right. <clears throat> there's that piece of it um, that sort of says, well, we should just decentralize everything. Right. And have uh, states manage everything, maybe even local public health departments measure, uh, do everything if that's the case, right? You take it to the extreme. But the other thing that pushes against that, obviously, is that, well, this stuff's spreading, right? It's moving from place to place and places where it's moving are going to be somewhat determined by economic patterns and what states trade with who. And so an, an individual county or an individual state, there's a huge amount of the risk and the damages that come from a disease that they don't pay any attention to, right? Cause it's spreading outside their own population. Yeah. So you get, you get this kind of, uh, it, 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 we, we call, we refer to it as a weak link public good. So there's this, this is notion of public goods where these things that, uh, uh, you know, you can't be excluded from taking advantage of it. Uh, but you also don't have to pay for it. Uh, and a weak link public good is taking that to the extreme and basically saying that this this public good only gets provided if everybody contributes and pitches in. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you can have a number of states that are doing all they can to kind of control the spread of this of this disease. Uh, but if one state just decides to, you know, buck the trend and, and do nothing, then those folks can spread into the neighboring states and kind of 
basically undermine all the uh, all the investments they made in public health in those states. So not not to mention if 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 uh, if a bunch of people fly to a given area specifically because they say, uh, you know, have have a, 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 a you know, total uh, there's no mandates, total freedom to do whatever they want or whatever. And then they fly back home yeah. to the places that have been doing everything that they can to mitigate spread. Um, you can see how, and, and that, that's the sort of stuff that doesn't get tracked very thoroughly either. And, and is, is really difficult to, uh, get a handle on just how much that is happening. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's a, there's an analogy to that in, in this pollution literature, they call it a race to the bottom basically, which is this idea that, uh, states are going to start competing for more lax environmental regulations because they want to attract businesses to their state right. or whatever it might be. Right. So you can right. see the same type of thing happening with COVID restrictions now, right? It's like, well, you want to go on vacation? You can do whatever you want here. Come on, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And so they get that short-term boost to the economy, and then they're exporting basically the disease back to whatever state they were in, right? Right. Um, the, I it, mean, it, it's it, it's also so hard with, you know, say, say you're uh, – because a lot of times it's not – you know, they're not plotting. It's not the intention to go spreading a bunch of uh, disease around the country because you you believe in whatever this and that freedom and want to open your doors or whatever. But but there there's so many things like that. Like if, if you're a if you're a farmer um, up north and even even if you know the fertilizer that's getting into the Mississippi might be you know getting into the Gulf and impacting the fishermen there and everything like that, you might go like, yeah, but how much is like my little bit of fertilizer actually doing? And you aren't a farmer, and or you or sorry, you aren't a fisherman in the in the Gulf, so you it, it's not as. Uh, it, as costly to you. You're, you're not right. being directly as impacted by it. There's, there's just so many things like that within environmental issues. Right. Uh, it shows up a lot. I mean, it shows up in, in pollution. It shows up in endangered species protection where, you know, I might, I might do a lot for my own parts or my own land to try to take care of an endangered species. But if someone else doesn't, then it sort of all falls apart too. So yeah, the, these things show up in a lot of different places. We weren't the first to kind of point them out. Uh, but, but we were basically just trying to pair those off and say, okay, well that goes on. If you just allow the States to do everything, you get no coordination, you get people flying all over the place with, to, to take advantage of lax standards and then ship stuff back. So there's some middle ground in between, right? It, it, the feds are going to basically account for all that, right? If you let the federal government yeah. do it, they will account for all that stuff, but they may not be able to tailor a policy exactly to the specifics of the state. And there's that trade off between the States having kind of the ability to do whatever that makes sense for them versus the feds being able to kind of coordinate all the states toward a, 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 a similar type of goal. If you can come up with a goal, right? This, uh, this just happens in so many things. I had a, uh, hopefully his name comes to me, University of Wichita. Come on, subconscious, make it pop out. Um, but I had, a I had someone on not too long ago, a repeat guest, uh, definitely remember his name anyway did did fascinating research with um with training police and and building better simulators and figuring out like okay when a person moves their hip this way it means this like this is the this is the thing you wouldn't think you should pay attention to when worrying about being shot at or something but mm. actually if you look at someone's 
knee movement instead of their eye movement or, or whatever. Anyway, one of the interesting takeaways from it was that there's no standardized anything like anywhere in, in in the country and it seems completely insane to just let every local uh police department train their own people but then of course you can make a, a case that well who knows the actual local terrain better than the local police department is so there's certainly things and yes the science of how how to train you know when you know someone's going to be shooting it might be something that you'd federally mandate but then you you want to leave some room up to the local departments to figure out their you know what's best for their communities right and in this i mean in the disease case you can kind of figure out some of this stuff by working with the epidemiologists um because if you know kind of how how uh how fast or how how a contagious the disease is, you can get some indication of how fast and rapidly it's going to move across state boundaries. And then if you know something about kind of how, where people are traveling uh, for work or business or what have you, you can get some sort of indication about the degree to which a state may be missing spillover effects that are occurring in other states. But the same general idea yeah, shows up in a lot of a lot of different places. So, um, so yeah, but what was, uh, what did some of your work with COVID reveal? <laughs> Just that it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's hard to figure out exactly where to set these things. Uh, like, it, like I said, it kind of comes down to, uh, what policies you're talking about, right? Cause obviously a policy to shut down a border changes this whole discussion versus a vaccination policy. Um, and so we, at the same time, if you have a very contagious disease, that's different than a disease that requires, you know, direct physical licking or whatever to kind of get it spread. Right. So it, all those things sort of fit into this and kind of paint a picture of where you are in terms of for this particular policy, for this type of disease, uh, you know, this these types of policies should be focused at the state level. And then these types of policies should probably be left to the feds. Right? There is no the, the whole notion that all policies would go to one or the other is sort of the wrong way of thinking about it, right? There's just clearly some policies that the state can should handle. Uh, and then there's others that the that the feds should handle. And so part of that was just kind of parsing it out and thinking through what should be what should be handled and what in, in different locations. What are the sort of considerations you need to make in terms of how 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 these things will be received by the public? Because because there's there's things that uh, okay say say take something like condoms you go okay we've researched this condoms are exceptionally effective and so we're we're uh this state in like north dakota uh, uh, you know whatever random state we've decided we're going to mandate if you uh, like if you have intercourse outside of marriage or whatever that you that you need to wear a condom uh I would guess that condom use might potentially drop because because people have an adverse reaction to being told what to do and to mandates, even though the you know, there's an objective reality that the effectiveness is there. But in terms of the public communication, some of these ideas of mandates can really backfire. And yeah. I think you've seen that with, uh, you know, some of the messaging with masks and 
distancing it. It, it. And maybe there was no, maybe there was no better way of doing it ever. And lots of people were just going to be in denial or want to live in their own, um, you know, reality and whatever else. But how, how do you make considerations like that when it comes to these environmental issues and everything else? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Cause a lot of the policies that we were considering in that paper, their effectiveness is not clear. It's not, it's, it's, there may be scientific information that gives you some idea about how well it works, but people may discount that or they may not be aware of it. And so the, the uncertainty piece of that one was a big thing that we left out, but it's something that a lot of my research kind of centers around, which is kind of how do people make these decisions about, uh, uh in, in the face of risk and uncertainty. Um, and so with, all this stuff, that's certainly the case, right? Is that you, you have some sort of policy that you don't know exactly how well it's going to work. Um, it, 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 and how pay basically do people respond to that uncertainty? We have economists have all sorts of models, right? For how people make decisions under uncertainty. But I'd say it's one of the places where economists struggle a lot is to figure out how people do. Cause it, decisions under uncertainty, people just do weird things, right? I mean, they can, they can either ignore the information and say, well, your objective information means nothing to me and I'm going to discount it and do something completely different. Um, But then there's also weird stuff that people start to do when you start to get into stuff like, like uh, epidemics, which we would think of as kind of low probability, high severity events, right? So it's, there's a very low probability that I'm going to catch COVID and die, right? Mm-hmm. But it's a low probability, high severity, right? And you can basically group everybody in society into one of two camps. You either think about the low probability and you hone in on that and you say, ah, I'm not going to worry about it. There's a low probability. Or you focus on the huge severity and you completely freak out and panic, right? So, and you think yeah. you could see, you could see everybody in society right now is falling into one of those two camps with COVID, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's, it, we have models to try to figure out how people respond to these probabilistic events where you don't know exactly what's going to happen. But as the probability starts to go towards zero and that severity blows up, our models just don't do a great job of, of processing how people respond to those uncertainties. I mean, I, I love uh, behavioral economics stuff so much of, of, of kind of, uh, because it's along the similar lines of what we're talking about, which is it, you can, you can step back and look at some, you know, uh, do the calculations of what this ideal scenario would look like and then hope that humans behave as rationally as your uh, as your computer models uh, do. But that's often not the case in the real world. It's it's interesting with uh, with things like covid. And I, I would say it would probably extend into a lot of these bigger issues of biodiversity loss and uh and global warming and everything else where uh but especially something like a global pandemic where whether they're admitting it or not probably most people at least in the beginning were uh probably scared or feeling feeling a loss of predictability and loss of control over a lot of things and in their life and that's such a major stress stressor that sometimes uh, you know, uh, creating a mandate or something um, is that just adds to that feeling of, of of a loss of 
control. Some people, like for me, um, I I've, I've just traveled a bit and had to go through Vegas and L.A. and everything. And from being from someone in Wisconsin that uh, where uh, there's no mandates here and I, I'm the only one that ever wears a mask in a gas station that as far as I see, it was kind of a relief for me to see like, oh, cool, they have mandates here. So when I do go indoors, I... I know everyone else is going to be wearing a mask and never and I appreciate that. But I also I also understand that uh, I'm also a rebel and I also understand like, uh, you know, mandates and laws hit everyone a little differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's certainly when you command things, right, it, it certainly changes how people perceive them. I mean, there's a whole lot more going on, obviously, with COVID and 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 there's economic literature that delves into conspiracy theories and why people believe them and things like this. And mm. so all these things are kind of going on, but it, it certainly is one of these cases where once you start to add a little bit of unpredictability and a little bit of uncertainty, uh, economists have a much harder time predicting what people will do in those situations. Yeah. What, what are some of the, um, what are some of the similarities that you've, noticed between the challenges of covid and then just some of your other environmental work that you've been doing for longer yeah um probably just the degree to which um probably just the degree to which there's such questioning of the actual data itself um Mm. I feel like in, in most of environmental applications, we don't have nearly as good a data as um, uh, a lot of my other colleagues study other types of economics, right? So I have labor economists in my department, for instance, that are studying labor markets, and they've got this treasure trove of data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics that they can go tap anytime they want, right? Um, and I here I am, I'm doing research on endangered species, right? And I may have like couple of years of species counts that an ecologist collected for me you know i don't i don't have a whole lot of data to work with um but the data we have we try to try to use it as much as we can and squeeze every bit of information out of it so it's 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 been interesting to see how even though we are sort of in some respects awash with data in the COVID story um it gets discounted there's such a disconnect between kind of what the data says and then what people perceptions are for one reason or another so that's that's been one of the big uh, the big differences uh, between the two, but it, it's also a case where there's a lot more of of kind of true uncertainty. So we when we do this research, we think of um, kind of the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns, right? Um, so mm. there's the unknown unknowns are obviously the true uncertainties, right? So like you were talking about April of 2020, COVID was a true unknown unknown, right? Um, mm. And the known unknowns are the things where we have some history we have some data we can we won't be able to predict it with any certainty but we can put a maybe a probability distribution on it and give us some notion about how well we are predicting this given that past data um so COVID is clearly you know started off in that completely unknown unknown category and then it's you know gradually maybe transitioned into a world where we have a little bit of data that we can use but there's probably a bit of a mind block between saying, oh, it's just an unknown, unknown thing. I have no data to base this off of. And then now you're suddenly you're telling me you have all this data that you've collected over the course of a year and you have such uncertainty or such certainty about what we should do. Uh, it's sort of a 
I'd say rarely have we had such an endeavor where we've collected so much information so quickly. And I think in a lot of cases, people are just having a hard time switching over from, we don't know. It's just, it's, it, you're, you're kind of making it up as you go to now suddenly people are super well informed about things. Um, mm. So it, it's, it certainly seems to be that, that, that notion of kind of switching over from a known unknown to a, uh, to an unknown unknown is, is, has been tricky for people. Hmm. What about in terms of, um, some of your past work and in terms of, in terms of communicating some of these issues to the public or businesses or, um, people in the agriculture industry or whatever, where, you know, I've, I've been doing this podcast for about eight years and, um, the, uh, you know, six years or whatever, um, that I did this before COVID, I never had anyone, uh, you know, like angrily questioning <laughs> every, uh, uh, like a detail of even, even just putting out, uh, and I mean, I've weeded those people out now, so we're in a safe space, but, um, <laughs> but it, it's, it's, uh, it, you know, if I had someone on that researched giraffes or something like that, no one was ever like, this giraffe researcher doesn't know what they're talking about. I trust my gut when it comes to giraffes. And uh, like, I I know giraffes better than this person. No one, no one was ever like, well, I've, I found this rapper and two disgruntled scientists uh, on Twitter that validate my giraffe perspective. So <laughs> screw this giraffe research i don't be believe this scientific dogma and and but COVID has just been uh it, kind of a nightmare <laughs> honestly it's been it, never have i seen so much denial so much like anger of just trying to be like hey here's uh here's some information here's what they know so far i thought this might be useful for you and and people just really not wanting to hear anything. Yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a, there's always been this notion, I guess, that in this, in the economics world that, um, you know, the source of the uncertainty you're thinking of matters, right? So, you know, I might think if I'm doing endangered species research, right, there might be, uh, uncertainty about, you know, how people value a species. There could be uncertainty about, you know, what will the population of that species be from year to year? Cause there could be a massive snowstorm that knocks a population back and they could have a couple of good growing years. Right. So those, those would all be uncertainties. You could have uncertainty over the price of whatever it might be if you're harvesting it. Right. If it's like an endangered fish species or something. So there's all sorts of different sources of uncertainty. Um, and there's always been this, question that I've that showed up in the economics literature a lot, but it's, it's always kind of motivated me, which is how do two people walk into the room basically and cite the same uncertainty as a reason for doing something and doing nothing, right? And people kind of will say, well, we don't know enough yet, so we need to hold back and not do anything. And then other mm -hmm. people will look at it and say, oh, well, there's we have huge uncertainty and they kind of focus on worst case scenarios immediately, right? And say, we need to do something now. Um, mm -hmm. And it's interesting how that happens, right? And And Part of it has to do with this, this intersection between what we call uncertainty and irreversibility. So if you've, the, the classic case, right, is like if you've got a ton of uncertainty, but you're doing something where you can all, you always get take backs, right? And you can always redo it. It's not, the uncertainty is not such a big deal, right? Because the uncertainty, you can basically just go through, observe what happens, and then you just adjust your behavior, right? 
Um, and then likewise, the irreversibilities that you might have in your life uh, aren't that big a deal if there's no uncertainty, because you basically just know exactly what's going to happen. You can walk right up to the edge of the line. So the analogy is like walking along a cliff in the fog, right? Um, cliff is a pretty big irreversibility if you fall off of it, and the fog is sort of your representation of uncertainty. Um, but if you take away the fog, the cliff isn't that big a deal. And if you take away the cliff, then the fog isn't that big a deal, right? Um, mm. So a lot of what a lot of what I've been doing of, of late is trying to figure out where are the irreversibilities because it seems like the irreversibilities are causing people to think about uncertainty in a different way. So a classic mm. example, right? It might be if you're if you're talking about climate change, for instance, if you think that the irreversibility is kind of tipping points in the climate um, that's going to you know basically cause the melting of the ice ice caps and it's going to reverse the the currents in the ocean and we'll never be able to go back then you're obviously going to look at the uncertainty and say, I better, we better take this precautionary approach and we better do something now. Right. Um, but if you look at the irreversibility as, and if we shift off of fossil fuels, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. It's going to completely can change the, change the economy. Um, and we may, we, we may never be able to go back to that old economy anymore. Uh, people are going to lose their jobs and it's going to have these irreversible impacts on communities. Well, then you look at the uncertainty a little bit differently, right? You need a higher burden of proof to get you over that. So mm. I, I've been, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about are people looking at different types of uncertainty when they're citing that uncertainty and saying we should or should not do something, or is it that they're looking at the same uncertainty, but they're just motivated by different cliffs or different irreversibilities that may cause them to look at it differently. That's fascinating. Um, so, well, I'm, I'm very curious what your, um, what your take is on, uh, this, this is such a big question. What, what your general take on, on a kind of global warming is in terms of uh, how, where you fall between, uh, my guess is, is that you, you try to figure out a balanced approach between the two opposite ends of these uh, these two extremes, the fog and, and the cliff. And how does your, how does the lens through which you see it maybe different, differ from others? I don't know. I don't know that it's, it's different. I mean, I was, as economists, we spend all our time looking at trade-offs, right? So we, people will say, well, no, you know, don't ask an economist because they'll just say, well, on the one hand, and then they'll just say on the other hand, right? And it's really just the economist thinking through the trade-offs, uh, but it makes us look indecisive. Right? <laughs> so but that's, that's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Right. Isn't yeah. this the, like what, what super forecasters do really well is they hem and haw and consider, uh, lots of, uh, there's a lot of, on the other hands, uh, yeah, on in, the other amongst hand, the people that make the, the best predictions. Yeah. It always gives you the chance to be right, uh, or a little <laughs> less wrong. Um, but I, on climate change, I mean, I think there's some basic, just, uh, some pretty basic arguments that would say, look, we're probably need, we need to do something right away. Uh, the question just becomes, what is it that we need to be doing? Uh, economists in general are pretty, um, are big proponents of carbon taxes. Um, and this is kind of this idea that, you know, car, what, what carbon is, is it's basically uh, a cost of production that, that certain industries just don't have to pay. Um, so when you burn, burn fossil fuels and you emit carbon, that's a production cost that we're not forcing them to pay. And so the carbon tax basically just, just internalizes that cost, uh, and then lets firms figure out how to respond to it. Right. So, mm. 
economists have been big on this notion of carbon taxes uh, for a long time, just kind of recognizing, look, at it's it, if we want to tackle climate change, this is going to be the uh, the least cost way of doing it, right? It'll, it'll get us to that goal, whatever goal it may be that you, that you want for climate, it'll get us there in the least cost way. Um, mm. and, and so I think m- most of the economy, we, we've gone back and forth about whether it should be, you know, a carbon tax or whether you should do cap and trade or one of those policies. At this point, I think economists are just like any, any of them will be better than doing nothing at this point. Yeah. Uh, just our, our, our debating this for 20 years is sort of, created this perception that there's a ton of uncertainty about this. And really economists just want to, we just, we want to do something. Either one of them will be fine. Just let us mm. debate these little trivialities about which one is best. <laughs> the carbon tax I think is coming out on top at this point. is just the most clear cut way of doing it. And then the notion of kind of taking the revenues that you'd get from the carbon tax and then cutting everybody a check is makes it super appealing to potentially get something passed. Um, so I, I, I don't, that's not necessarily my perception based on my research, but it is certainly the consensus that's emerging within the economics community. Well, let me throw this at you just to, I, I, I like to kind of um, share the way in which I would think through a thing, mostly so someone uh, smarter than me can correct me. That's the, most of what this show is about. Um, so I'll share and then you get to point out how wrong I am on many of the ways I'm thinking. So w- when it comes to something like a carbon tax or uh, even even say something like a sin tax like there is for cigarettes, is, is the idea that um, it, what I like about it is and I have no idea if this would actually be the case, but I, I think that it gets down to the true cost. I, I think it's really hard for us as consumers and manufacturers to understand the true cost of something. You go to the gas pump and you're like, well, this week my gas is $3 a gallon. Last week my gas was two fifty a gallon or something like that. But But what you're not seeing is... Uh, whatever military costs there may have been, whatever subsidies there there may have been. There's a lot of there's a lot of hidden costs. The 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 land that may have been the the oil spills that may have happened that uh, uh, and and a potential um, something like a carbon tax um, or a syntax would in an ideal if done right kind of make us potentially make us a little more mindful to what the actual costs is be, be besides just the kind of short-term economic here's what this costs in dollars um is that am i thinking about that in a no yeah no that's it i mean it's basically I mean, kind of a, i think the, the the way economic way of thinking is i don't necessarily want to ban anything i just want people to face the true costs of whatever it is right yeah and then people can decide basically at that point how much of you know if they still want to go out and buy uh, a muscle car and 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 drive that if they're paying the full cost of Right. You know, burning the gasoline, then I, I don't, I don't care. That's fine. Right. I don't know how yeah. much you value driving that Dodge charger. You, you may really love driving it, but so I don't want to ban that. I just want you to pay the full cost of it. And then if you still choose to pay that price to go do whatever it is that you want to do, then that's, Hey, that's, that's fine. Yeah. To me, it just seems like a more of an honest, um, uh, 
it, it's it's conveying the information in a more honest way and uh, to hopefully lead to um, more informed decisions, whether you, you have, whatever you do with that information is kind of maybe besides the point a little bit. But um, I mean, I think, you know, taxes, laws, mandates, those those things are all like kind of dirty words and you can understand how no one likes being told what to do. No one wants to see that sign at the gas uh, station go up. Everyone would like like it to be as low as possible, but sometimes that's, uh, it, you know, what you're getting at the gas pump is a little bit like, uh, hey, join uh, Apple TV. It's free for the first three months or whatever. <laughs> it's like, well, maybe that's maybe not the true cost. It's not really, it's not really showing all of the terms and conditions and factoring in that not uh, what happens when after that three months or whatever else. And and that's what that's what kind of providing some of the true cost uh, through the use of regulatory practices or cap and trade or, or syntaxes and those sorts of things does to me. To me, it it's always seemed like a good idea to me, but I'm not the one that has to implement it. I, you know, I wouldn't know how, so what do I know? But it's uh, philosophically, it's seemed like the right way to go. Yeah. No, I think, uh, yeah. Well, then you should have been an economist, I guess, because it sounds like you're on board. <laughs> um, so, uh, so what are you, uh, what kind of research are you working on at the moment? What is the, oh, actually I wanted to, I have to apologize because I actually did a bit of research for this interview like three weeks ago or something when we were supposed to record and we just got rescheduled. No, 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 (laughs) totally fine. I should have done a refresher, but, um, I think you did a, you did, you've mentioned endangered species a few times and that's pinging me as like, oh, you, you do some work with endangered species and also evaluating some of the cost benefit analysis. I'm very interested in, uh, and excuse me if this isn't your area, but in how species end up on that list of when they <laughs> get taken off, what's, cause there, there's probably a cost involves just putting a species on the list too, right? Yeah, no, there's a big cost with getting the species on the list. I mean, it's, I don't have the current numbers, but I mean, it's, it can cost anywhere from $100,000 to millions of dollars to do all of the, the paperwork and, 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 uh, litigation that's needed to go in, creating the research that needed to go in and the reports, uh, to get these things listed. So it's not exactly costless just to put them on the list. Um, so there's a big cost to that. Uh, I mean, you ask what determines whether they go on there. I mean, technically, it's supposed to be uh, based on scientific information only, right? There's no economic ins- considerations that come into this. But um, I've had some colleagues at the uh, University of Colorado uh, or University of California Davis that have looked at kind of what's driving those decisions. And there's obviously there's there's little signals in there that economics is is economic considerations are kind of filtering in there to some extent. Um, mm. So for instance, I mean, the uh, vertebrate species are far more likely to be listed than invertebrate species or plants. Um, and it's not because they're more endangered, right? It's just because 
people get warm fuzzy. They're cute. See, they're cute, right? So we put them on there. I don't need that lichen on there, right? Uh, I don't need another another type of uh, whatever fern it is, right? Um, but yeah, they, they de- definitely people prefer the vertebrate species, and so they show up a lot more. Um, I get it. Yeah. They're, I mean, I, I mean, I'm not when I'm scrolling through Instagram, I'm I'm stopping on the cute animal videos way more often than I am the plant pictures. I do both. I do both. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah. but there's an intuitive feeling. It was interesting. So I'll point out the, the, the researcher that has been doing some of this work. Her name is, is Fran Moore. Uh, she's at UC Davis. But what they did was they went through and they were looking to see if the names of these species were showing up in books. So they had done this text analysis to see if either the common name of the species or the, the scientific name were mentioned in books with the idea being that species that get discussed in books more often are probably more front of mind for people. Um, and there was some like weak evidence that like the degree to which a, a species shows up in literature even is correlated to some extent with, with how likely it is to get on the endangered species list. Interesting. So it's a familiarity. It's a film. Uh, yeah. People, people don't want to lose the thing they're familiar with. If it's a the thing they're unfamiliar with, they don't care as much about it. What about, what about the names themselves? What if you call something like the joy fern or something? Does that, does that, but I don't want to lose the joy fern. We should think about that actually. They've, <laughs> they've been trying to do this with invasive species. So we've also been doing work on uh, Asian carp that are in the, in the Tennessee river and they're in the, the Mississippi river. They're, 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 uh, uh, grow f- super fast. Right. So, but they're, they're an invasive species here, but they're a delicacy in China. And so we've been trying to figure out how to rebrand them and make people like them more and maybe want to eat them and things. And so obviously yeah. carp, you don't want to go, I don't want the fried carp platter, you know, so you got to re- figure out how to rename it. Um, so they've experimented with different names to try to get people to eat these things. But I mean, it is, and this is getting kind of back to the behavioral economics stuff and even a little bit of marketing, uh, literature, uh, that kind of talks about how people perceive these things and whether you can rename them and get them to change how they look at it. So you could do the same thing for endangered species too. Yeah. Uh, Well, it's so, it's so interesting because, um, um, the, yeah, I've, I've probably shared a couple times of a uh, lobster used to be something that was so abundant in in New England that they would serve it to prisoners. And it was just this trash, cheap food that you'd give to prisoners and prisoners would would revolt because they were being fed so much lobster and nothing else. They just couldn't handle it anymore. And then yeah. and then you make it scarce. It becomes a delicacy. If, they, if there if there were only a hundred carp left in the United States. Uh, I'm sure carp would become a delicacy in in a hurry. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it there's factors would. like that. There is there is some research where they've shown, right, that people prefer to eat and hunt stuff the more endangered they know it is, which is just yeah. It's sort of feeding into your point there. There well there's there's the uh Oh, what is it? The Pelagon or whatever? My oh shoot! Why can't I think of any names today? My last One Health guest. Oh my goodness! I'm just gonna look it up. Um, Pangolin. Oh, is it the Pangolin um, that recently went on the endangered species? Anyway, I asked him what uh, his favorite 
like bushmeat foods had been. And he said he felt bad to say this, but the pangolin was one of the most delicious things he's ever tasted. And there's something about like, ooh. I really want to try pangolin. I, I feel, I feel, I feel ethically wrong for saying that. Adam Adam Wilcox um, uh. was was on, and uh, but yeah, there's something in me that like oh, I want to taste pangolin now. Um, but that's, I mean, it's such a it's such a messy uh, world that we live in. I. I being a human is, is such a complicated thing, especially in a modern world. I mean, you can hardly blame the average person for not having the energy or not wanting to consider all of these insanely complicated um, variables that we haven't evolved to consider. We haven't evolved. Climate change does isn't a thing that you feel. You know, it's it's, it's something that you discover through through our modern tool use and scientific methods. It's not something that uh, you feel like temperature. You know, uh, uh, biodiversity loss that happens over decades or something. It doesn't. You just don't feel it. Is it? You might. You might go around your hometown and go, "Man, th- this has sure changed a lot in the forty years that I've been on this planet, or or whatever." But you don't. You don't feel that on a day to day level. And the way in which human impacts are dramatically changing things from a uh, uh, you know objective like looking at trends over decades sort of thing is horrifying but on the day-to-day uh it's it's hard to feel it you know yeah yeah <laughs> it is it's hard to feel it and then, and then to some extent you get the impression that people are maybe making financial decisions that aren't completely connected to what they're saying right so there's, mm-hmm. you know, it, we've done a couple of different projects uh, looking at uh, adoption of more water efficient irrigation technologies in California, right? So we'll go through and we'll basically say, here's how people have been adopting these technologies. Should they have adopted them if they didn't think climate change was happening? Uh, and the answer is almost always no, right? They, they, you would need to believe climate change is happening to kind of justify some of these investments they're making in more efficient irrigation. But then at the mm. same time, you can go do a, you know, a public opinion survey and people will say they don't believe in it. Right. And it's, it's, it's sort of easy to kind of say I'm questioning. Uh, but you know, and a lot of times, especially for these kind of larger investments where you got to, you have to make this big irreversible decision about how much to invest in something you tend to maybe stick a little closer to believing the data in some of these circumstances. Um, but it certainly is, you know, I think some people have shown similar stuff of buying and selling real estate in Florida, right? People will say they're not, they're not worried about climate change. Um, but then real estate prices along the coast will signal otherwise. And so, so markets, will sig- I mean, markets are signaling kind of what people probably truly believe when they have skin in the game. Right. And surveys are sort of just signaling what people say they believe when there is no real skin in the game. That's interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. I mean, that's every day of my life is what I say I'm going to do and what ends up happening are, <laughs> are two very different things. Yeah. Um well, 
going back to endangered species, um, I, I, I guess what would, what would you like? Um, two questions, two pretty big questions. One, what would you like the public to understand more in terms of uh, when thinking about endangered species or when they when they see the next call to action to save this and that and because there's also yeah I mean obviously there's bias when like everyone needs to protect the bald eagle when you're American and that's your national bird and right. and and um, maybe not so much you don't care about the the species that isn't on, uh, you know, associated with your country or state or whatever. Um, it, so, so I'd love to know what you wished the public knew more about, because this is a, this is a, a big part of the One Health Initiative is just getting some more of this information and knowledge out to the public, and then after that or before that, any way that you want to order the if, answer, this is fine. Um, I'd love to know what your take is and and what some of the issues with the endangered species list and if if you had a little more influence on whatever board or whatever is associated with this, what you would maybe recommend in terms of policy change. Yeah, oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I I think I think a lot of people have pointed this out, but you know, the endangered species. Act is really more about habitat than it is the species itself. Mm. Um, so it's unlikely, you know, that if the species goes extinct, that people that were advocating for the protection of that species would be like, "Oh, okay, we don't need this habitat anymore. You can bulldoze it and turn it into whatever you want." Right? It, you're you're wanting to protect both the species and the habitat. Um, and so one of the things that has been promoted, I'm not the I, I, people. Other people have said this, but I just think it's a good idea. Is that, it should be more focused on habitat than it is species. Um, mm. It's not necessarily the species. You've got to, in order to protect the species, you obviously have to protect the habitat. Um, but by focusing more on habitat, then you'd kind of be recognizing where habitat is serving dual purposes and protecting multiple species. Uh, and you'd be focusing more on the connections of kind of humans to the species, right? That they're really, humans are interacting with the species through the habitat. So that's sort of just a conceptual refocusing off of, and I'm not saying there should be like an endangered habitats list or something like that, but that's sort of kind of the idea is let's take the focus off of the species itself and get away from kind of counting species and things like this and focus more on preserving habitat. Mm. Uh, and then if you do that really well, then the rest of the species preservation will come, right? Um, so I think that's the first thing. I think the uh, the second thing to recognize is that it, it it is insanely costly to get these things listed and to have them on the endangered species. So we'd be far better off if we could just keep them off the list to begin with. Um, and we know this. There's a lot. There's a huge backlog of species that are technically uh, meet the criteria for listing, but the Fish and Wildlife Service that administers the Endangered Species Act has just decided that they, they're they not a high priority. Mm. Um, and so there's a huge backlog of things that we know we should be protecting, but we just don't have the funds to protect it. Um, and so it would just be, be far better to not wait until these things get so far gone that they could make the list and to try to figure out policies that would prevent them from getting uh, in such bad shape to begin with. Uh, I mean, so the, we were talking this past month 
Uh, here in Tennessee, the big news was that the uh, the snail darter was getting off the endangered species list. And the snail darter was kind of the big first test case for uh, kind of how are people going to react to the endangered species list, right? I mean, it's almost like any environmental policy, right? When, when Congress writes it up, it's we're going to combat this environmental degradation at any cost at all. But that's how the, how the legislation is sort of written. And then they hand it over to the EPA or they hand it over to the Department of Energy or whoever it is. And then they're the ones who have to figure out how to make this work, right? And so it's sort of like that with the Endangered Species Act. When you read the legislation, it's we're going to protect species at all costs. And then, of course, you go on and people start to, oh, how serious were we about that all cost thing, right? And so then that <laughs> yeah. starts to starts to become the debate that moves forward. So the snail darter was kind of the first test case for this. There was a big dam that was supposed to be built on the on the, the Little Tennessee River here in, in, in East Tennessee. And the whole project was almost complete. And then they found this um, this uh, the snail darter uh, that was living in this stream that, that it was the only other place they'd found it in the world. Uh, and they put it on the endangered species list uh, to try to stop this dam project. And there was a huge debate back and forth about this thing. And uh, finally, the dam project went ahead anyway. Um, even though the, the snail darter was on the endangered species list. But that was 19, oh, I'm going to mess up the dates, mid-70s, um, that it was put on the list, and it was just delisted. Uh, actually, it's just proposed for delisting. It hasn't been delisted yet. So, I mean, it's taken a long time to get this thing off the list and to kind of do all the work that it takes to build these places back up. So it would be far better to just keep these things from reaching the brink of getting on the list to begin with. Uh, and I, part of part of what it has taken, I think, is is the firms, the, the companies, the businesses that are developing these habitats are now recognizing that, hey, it's a huge cost if we have something that gets listed. Like if you're an oil and gas company operating in Oklahoma uh, and you're worried that there's a species that's on your uh, on your property, that might get listed, that might, you know, limit how much you can do drilling for oil and gas. Um, you have a pretty big incentive to try to make sure that you can create habitat and get those species numbers back up and prove to the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, that this thing is not as endangered as, as, as they thought, right? So there's previously it was sort of this shoot, shovel and shut up story where, you know, firms would just try to hide the fact that they had these endangered species uh, or maybe kill them off before anyone caught them there. And now I think firms in some cases are starting to realize, hey, look, if we do get caught with this thing, it's really going to be costly. Let's try to do some some initial efforts to keep the population up and not on the endangered species list. That seems more reasonable <laughs> to me. That seems like progress. It, I mean, it's A just taken bit. 30 years for them to realize that that's the smarter way to go, right? Yeah. Um well, what what is your take on because I, I like this habitat perspective um, and it, through that lens, does that mean that, you know, when thinking about something like an endangered species, you're you're more thinking about things like um, keystone species or but both both keystone species that um that are essential for the environment and then kind of, uh, I guess the, the more harmful invasive species. Cause I imagine there's plenty of invasive species that probably don't harm the habitat 
that much. It's just ones that kind of break through and, uh, but then at the same time, there's all sorts of like, uh, say the bee population, even without it going extinct, if there's a dramatic, um, uh, hit to it, that's, that's going to be a lot more costly for the habitat. Even if, even if, uh, bees are still far from extinction. Mm-hmm. Um, it, do you know what I'm saying with that? I, I, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm curious how much you would, uh, so, so when you, the endangered species list as it is right now has, uh, you know, you'll see like, oh my gosh, there's only like 80 of these rhinos left or something like that. I, I think it, in a habitat model, you would um, kind of award more points or something, depending on how much of an impact a given species has on the environment. Um, I mean, I would think of it more as you would focus on habitats that you think are endangered. Um, and then if you basically preserve the habitat, then these species will come back on their own. I see. Right? Um, so I think you almost take the whole species notion out of it, right? Every, every habitat will have, uh, you know, food webs that have developed because of a healthy habitat, right? And if the habitat is unhealthy, then those food webs basically get trimmed to some extent and species kind of drop down and, 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 and the, maybe the food chain gets a little more funneled. Um, but if the habitat is healthy, then those things would kind of naturally, uh, naturally kind of build out the species that were already potentially there. Now, I mean, in, in, uh, invasive species sort of change that a bit, right? Because you could, you could be preserving the habitat itself uh, and then just leaving yourself more susceptible to uh, endangered species coming in, right? If an endangered species is more invasive in a uh, in a pristine habitat versus a disturbed habitat, and there are cases where invasive species, uh, you know, some invasive species do really well when you have disturbed habitat, and others uh, uh, do really well where you have natural pristine habitat. So uh, the endangered, the the invasive species sort of. Uh, makes the habitat model add some nuance to the habitat model, I guess. Um, but I think the natural way of thinking about it would just be, let's just identify habitats that we think are endangered. There may be some consideration of the species that live on those habitats, obviously, if that's part of the reason that you're concerned about them, but it wouldn't necessarily be these goals of saying, I've got 80 rhinos and I need them to go to 200 before I'll feel better about it. Right. It's more of a, Mm you know, make the habitat healthy and then the, the rhino population, uh, will, will recover naturally on its own, provided you haven't driven it to, uh, to a breaking point already. So how do you, how do you go about forming a hab, a habitat centric policy when, cause one of the things about the endangered, the, uh, one of the things about a species oriented, uh, perspective is, I feel like it's just easy. The, the calculations are easier, you know, if, mm-hmm. if there's 60 rhinos and 30 rhinos or then 500, you, you can kind of, you can measure success really like quite clearly. If you've decided this is how we measure success, it's the number of rhinos that exist on earth. Um, it, whereas a habitat, things get very messy. I mean, this is, I love the messiness of it. This is, this is why I love the one health initiative uh, so much is because it, it factors in so much of the the complication and, and trying to 
figure out the organized chaos that that we live in and how to how to manage it and create effective policies and raise awareness and everything but how it, it, do you know what i'm saying how do you how do you go about creating habitat um specific policy yeah it's a good question i don't know that i i, I don't have the, the answer on that one i mean obviously it is easier to, to kind of set goals and determine whether you've succeeded when you're focusing on population numbers um so i guess in that respect it's easier i guess the, the downside of course is that if you don't understand the interactions between the habitat and the species then you may not be able to figure out exactly what you need to do to get it over that hump right um, if you think that well, all I need to do basically is just preserve this thing where the rhino lives right now, um, but it actually could survive over here and it actually may need to move if climate change is happening and driving and, and drying up its water source or what have you. I, mm -hmm. I think that gives you more of a perspective that, you know, these things will probably work because they're helping preserve the habitat and maybe looking forward to see where habitat will be in a few years. Uh, whereas these things are just trying to, you know, uh, boost a number or maybe prevent, uh, prevent more harvesting and things like this that are more number centric on the population itself. Um, I think the big reason that people have sort of started moving to this habitat question was that recognition that, that species ranges are shifting, right? So, you know, climate change is moving where these species can exist. They're shifting migration patterns and things like this. And so, the real fear was, well, shoot, if we list this thing now and we designate a whole bunch of critical habitat when we list this thing and we say, okay, we've got to protect these areas. We spend a ton of money on protecting those areas. And then it turns out that in 10 years time, this species has migrated somewhere else uh, and those investments are no, you know, no longer any good. Um, that hopefully maybe this, this habitat perspective could kind of guide you in thinking about those types of considerations a little more than just saying, well, this thing is here right now. Let's just save what we've got where it's at right now. And it, I, I feel like the habitat perspective also um, just is further reaching. It's, it's more inclusive of, of so many other considerations in terms of what pipeline is coming through a given area? What um, what what should be considered a national park? What should be available for um, uh, for real estate? Um, where can you drill? Uh, that sort of it, a lot. It includes a lot more factors than just a species uh, uh, perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think you're. You're hitting the nail on the head. I mean, when we when you do the listing decision, right? It's all about numbers. It's all about the the population of the species. is all about the numbers, right? But then when you actually have to go and do these management plans to to uh, rehabilitate the species and re, it, that's all about the habitat, right? So it's almost like you're making a decision about what goes on the list based on populations. But then when you turn your attention after it's listed to what are the things we're actually going to do to to bring the species back up, it's all about habitat, right? And so there's some fear that if you're you're basically setting an objective when you put something on the list and you're setting an objective based on this metric, which is the population, but then you're pulling all the levers over here based on habitat that these things might not, that might not be the most efficient way of, of getting these things off the list, right? Mm. So 
I have some really good news for you, which is all of Congress has started listening to this show. They're listening to this episode specifically. You know, this is a very, this is a, they, they, they've, they had a realization, you know, they're like, oh man, we've been doing this all wrong. We've been, (laughs) we've been putting all of our effort into going around giving pep talks in various regions and these cheesy campaign speeches and stuff. And what if we instead just did a really good job and then people saw that and would would elect based on that and 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 they're like oh my god goodness we need to know more about the uh, the environment and protecting habitats and economics influence in that what so now that you have their ear what's uh what's some things that you would you would like to see from uh policymakers perspective some some things that like information that you'd like to see to get through some some new considerations being made uh with respect to endangered species or or just just generally yeah in general Uh, with with your work because we we all have a different lens based on based on our uh the the things that inform us and the things that are uh that we care most about and so i'm sure that you have a different lens through which when you're reading the uh, newspaper and everything, uh, you shake your head or celebrate different things. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in general, I think as, as, as the, kind of the economic way of thinking we've already talked about, it's, uh, you know, just trying to get these markets correct, right? What does that, what does that mean? Economists have a pretty good definition of what that means. Uh, but it was like we were talking about earlier with climate change is like making sure that the price of these things is reflecting the true cost of using them. Right. Um, or if, if it's a benefit, right, it's, it's kind of making sure that the habitat you're protecting, that the value of that land is actually reflecting the true benefit that it provides to society. Right. If you're owning ranch land in uh, North Dakota, you, you may, the market price may signal a different benefit than what it might be for habitat preservation. Right. So I think it's, it's really just, you know, we should be spending more time trying to make sure we have the markets right. And if it takes a tax to fix the market, then tax isn't such a bad thing, right? A tax is just trying to make the markets work more efficiently. And I think most, uh, you know, most people that don't like taxes are also usually pretty free market economics. So that's essentially what it's doing is just trying to just make these markets work more efficiently. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. once you get those things kind of locked down and nailed away, you realize how, how little of this other regulation you need. Um, and so, you know, this is one of the issues with the, with the carbon tax issue that they're talking about is if you could impose this carbon tax, there would be a lot of, of current climate policies that are on the books that you would no longer need. Uh, mm. cause the whole purpose is right. Is that the carbon tax be creating those incentives that were originally created by like a renewable fuels mandate or something. It would be creating those incentives, but it would just be doing it a lot cheaper. Um, and so you're getting to the same point at a lower price. You don't need both of these policies. Let's just use the one that's going to get us to avoiding one degree Celsius, uh, temperature increase at the lower price tag. Um, so I think most of, I think most of what I talk to, and I do, I do a bit of talking to folks, uh, to politicians in my role here at the Baker center. Um, but a lot of what I'm trying to get across is that a lot of these things that you think are dirty words that are taxes or, or cap and trade and things like this, these are really just economists attempt to try to make these markets work better. Um, mm. So if you like free markets, then then you should be a little more supportive of those types of uh, efforts. 
And that's just true of any environment, right? I mean, I think it, it, as an environmental economist, we're always trying to use the market to fix the environment. I mean, that's kind of the basic thing environmental economists try to do, just because we see the the market as a uh, more efficient and less costly way of trying to achieve whatever environmental goal you want to achieve, right? So I can sit in a room full of ecologists and hydrologists and epidemiologists, and we can all come up with a goal. And then it's sort of my job at the end of the day to say, okay, here's the goal we wanted. Let's just try to get there for the low, for the least price as possible, right? <laughs> I'd like to pay the lowest amount I possibly can uh, to achieve that goal. And I don't want to pay more than I have to. So I think that's just in general, the economic way of thinking that that would be that I would that I'm usually trying to espouse when I'm talking to people about policy in general is that mindset and that way of thinking about things. Well, that's an interesting um, that's an interesting consideration. That's I mean, uh, that's a heck of a selling point that I think most people would get down with, which is the idea of hey, if we t- if we put this one policy in place, whether you like policy or not, that might mean that this one policy negates the um, the need for other policies. So yes, we're adding a policy here, but you're you're also losing um, you're you're gaining freedoms in other ways. right. And, and then the whole I mean the whole debate about the carbon tax is really turned since there was more discussion about using those tax revenues to provide rebate checks to people. Uh, so for the longest time, right, it was a true tax. It just went to the general coffers and the federal government got to spend it wherever, however they wanted. But when you ask people, and they've done surveys on this, right, they're like, how much are you supportive of a carbon tax? Ah, I hate it. Tax. No, bad. Don't like it. What about a carbon tax where, where we'll take the revenues and then we'll send you a check for $100 every month? They're like, oh, well, that's better. Yeah, I can get behind that because it's really no longer a tax at that point. You're basically just collecting a pool of money and then redistributing it to people. Um, yeah. So that one gets a lot more support once you start to talk about it like uh, less like a tax and more uh, more like a, a dividend check, right? Basically, the economy is going to generate some some carbon and and that's going to cause a harm. And so now society as a whole is going to take advantage of kind of the the carbon reduction benefits instead of maybe a few companies or something. Hmm. That's uh. uh well, I, I I love the idea of um, of finding things that at first glance might seem like a cost, but uh, but there's actually a lot of downstream benefits to doing it, and you, you could you could see this in a lot of um, environmental, say, state park protections or something like that, where. Where it might seem costly, it might it might seem um, uh, like a cost to preserve all of this land, but potentially you're getting um, tourism. Uh, uh, you're getting uh, tourism money that's uh, that is better than like selling off the land for for someone's property or something. I'm losing my words here, but do you know you know what I'm trying to say? What no, are no. what are some of the if, I'm I'm really curious about some of the low kind of initial cost things that would, uh, from your perspective, lead to some of the bigger downstream benefits for everyone. I mean, it it would have to be those carbon taxes. I mean, I hate to keep yeah. beating a dead horse here, but we've 
we've just been studying those for so long um, that we have a pretty good handle on what those would look like and what they would do. I'd say better than any other policy that environmental economists have been pushing for the longest time. And what um, are the major hurdles in getting that passed? Um, that's a good question. At this point, I'm not sure. I think it's just that it's become a political issue. Um, and so people have just seen climate, climate itself has turned into a political issue. Um, so I think for the longest time there was, you know, there was legitimate questions about, uh, how well these things would work, quite what might be the implications of them. Um, and I think we have a much better handle on that now after 30 or 40 years of, of working through this stuff. Um, and now it just feels like it's much more of a, a political hurdle that's left to get over uh, on that front. Now, there's other places where the, that type of approach we still don't understand very well. And that's sort of the whole idea behind the One Health thing, right? Is that, well, as an economist, I want to get at the true cost and the true benefits of these things. But as you were saying, as One Health points out, these things are all connected. It's super complicated. Uh, so in a lot of cases, in order for me to get the true cost and the true benefits, I can't just do it on my own. I got to understand how these other systems work and work with other natural scientists and physical scientists to figure this out. Um, but that's in those cases, that's where, you know, you could say there's that more work when more work needs to be done to kind of figure out exactly how these things fit together. Um, but the carbon one is the one that we've been studying now for the longest time. And it's 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 the low hanging fruit that I think almost any economist that you'd survey, 99.9 percent .9 are going to say, yeah, we just need carbon tax. Um, mm. it, it, I'm also curious of some of the other benefits that might come from that. I, I remember over a decade ago reading um, this book from this guy, Ray Anderson, who is uh, no longer alive, but he was a carpet manufacturer that had this big environmental epiphany and realized he only had so much time left and uh, really bought into the idea of being more environmentally conscious and sustainable. But through that, he took things that uh, to reduce waste and everything else that ended up actually um, creating him more profit in the long run through mm -hmm. creating more sustainable um, ways of doing things and eliminating uh, waste within his industry. And I, I wonder how much a carbon tax would do something similar where uh, there are things that a lot of companies could maybe would maybe jump over to a different way of doing things if if the cost incentive was they're they're like maybe on the fence of of taking the initiative toward a new innovation anyway it's just right now the the cost of initiating that doesn't make sense whereas something like a carbon tax might be the catalyst for um some kind of green innovation and that sort of thing oh yeah i mean that's the idea right is that there'd be all these little improvements that could be made along the way uh from you know switching a fuel source or making a making a certain process more efficient so that you don't need as much fuel there'd be all these little tweaks along the way um that these firms would now have the incentive to do right and and the whole idea is that they probably know better about where to make those improvements so your 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 guy at the carpet manufacturer probably knows much more about that process and can figure out where those efficiencies should come from rather than an official at the EPA right um so, you know, if you take the regulatory approach, you're saying, 
you know, EPA official gets to decide how it is you're going to achieve your emissions reduction. Whereas with a carbon tax, you're basically saying, here, you figure it out. You know your process better than anyone else. The carbon tax is basically the reward for you finding these efficiencies, but we think you can probably find them better than we can. And yeah. so that's that in and of itself is what makes these makes this carbon tax approach so the, the price tag on it is so much smaller. It's just a much more efficient way because you're leveraging people's knowledge of their own production processes and their the inputs they're using and things like this to figure out what are the low hanging fruit in terms of reducing carbon emissions. And, and that's true for almost any pollutant that you would you would be looking at. Mm. Yeah. And that's the advantage of of uh, decentralizing those sorts of decisions. Yeah. I mean, you, you've, you've, in some ways, you've, you've kind of set a collective decision, right? I mean, as we as society have decided that we want to achieve some emissions reduction goal. And so that's to, that sort of sets what the tax is, right? But then mm -hmm. after we as society have decided what the, what the goal is and how high the tax needs to be to achieve that goal, then, you know, implementing the tax is basically how you get that done at the least cost. So yeah, it's sort of like saying we have a collective goal and then we're going to lever leverage this decentralized process to kind of do this in the most efficient way possible. So coming full circle after uh, everything that we've discussed and going back to the beginning of talking about, and you're, you're touching on this now, of uh, the, but we talked about the uh, kind of difference between the state and the federal level. Uh, how do you do something like a carbon tax if in any other way than other than at the federal level and if, if because how otherwise there's going to be the race to the bottom the the state that decides that they're not going to use the carbon tax or whatever and businesses will move there to not have to pay the carbon tax and and then and then on an international level if if your if your country has uh, restrictive enough policies. What's to stop people from outsourcing to other countries with less restrictive policies? So how do you uh, how do you manage that mess? Yeah, and you have uh, in thirty seconds or less. In thirty uh, no, seconds, or less. easy, easy. <laughs> um, I mean, the international thing is hard, it, but it comes down to basically setting what they call border adjustments, right? So. Uh, if you, if I import something from you and you don't have any, any carbon emissions policies in your place, uh, in your country, then I might impose an import tariff, which is basically just a, an import tax, uh, based on the carbon content of whatever it is that I'm importing. Right. So that basically says your country doesn't necessarily have a policy, but I'm going to basically make you pay for not engaging in these cleaner practices if you want to do trade with me as the United States or whatever it is. Um, now, that same thing doesn't go on at the sub-federal level, right? Because states can't impose tariffs on each other, right? I can't, Tennessee can't impose a tariff on Kentucky as much as it might want to. Um, yeah. But, so they can't do that at that level. But I think for the longest time, economists have thought, well, it's just better to not have these patchwork of different policies going on. We should just have the federal government just kind of set the stage and coordinate all this and let's get going. And I think of late, economists have started to recognize, you know, that that may be true, but there's just so much political. Every, there's so many things that have to fall into place politically for us to get a federal policy passed 
that having the states set different carbon taxes or different cap and trade programs might not be all that bad. Uh, kind of getting back to before, right? We may be we may be getting fixated on these slight differences between a state policy lead or a federal policy lead, when in reality it's just better to have some somebody lead, right? Um, mm. So I think economists, you know, over the years there's been a much bigger, uh, especially over the past. Uh, four to six years, a much bigger emphasis on states doing these policies. And so you see places like California that have cap and trade implemented and you see uh, Washington state having a vote about uh, carbon taxes that are at the state level that are only true for the state. Um, and you may end up seeing more of that as time goes on um, just because there seems to be such an impasse of getting things done at the federal level. And it's that political stuff that the, uh, you know, the economists can tell you what makes sense you know, economically, but if there's just political issues going on, then that may be the last hurdle that the economist hasn't figured out how to get over yet. Hmm. So then I guess maybe in kind of closing um, and also make sure and throw in anything else that you want to say before we wrap up. But so what what can people do and what can be done from i mean i guess you know obviously uh, things like the one health initiative are are trying to take initiative to get this information out to the public and hopefully within doing that that can be something where the public can then um add to the considerations that they have when they're when they're voting um uh, what kind of policies they should be voting for, because hopefully they're, it's a more informed public. So what can be done from kind of, I guess the bottom up level of, of things mm -hmm. um, for, for any listener here that isn't just Congress listening in. Yeah. I mean, obviously I think you pointed this out earlier is that there's just so much information for people to process at this point. Right. And so asking, I, I may be, different than many other of my colleagues in the One Health Initiative and thinking that that the fix to all this is just providing people with more information. Because I think people yeah. have already reached information overload at this point, right? I can't <laughs> take anymore. I can't sit down and consider whatever it is you're wanting me to consider. Yeah. Um, and so I, I may be a little more skeptical than some other of my colleagues about the degree to which we just need to tell people about this research that we're doing and it will it will everybody will suddenly snap out of it and they'll start paying attention and doing and, and doing what's best for the environment. I, I'm much more of the the science needs to go toward developing policies that will make it easier for people to do what's right. Um, I mean, I, we're all just looking for signals, right? And I think prices is kind of the one I've harped on today is, is sort of the biggest signal, right? If you get the prices right, that's sending signals to people uh, that they see every single day, right? But you say, I mean, you're, you're, into behavioral economics, that all that stuff is about nudges, right? It's these kind of invisible prices. If we can't change the prices per se, are there other things we can do uh, that will kind of signal to people to do the right thing without them having to process a whole bunch of information and kind of like these rational economic robots that we think of them as? So, mm. I, I mean, I guess, I guess, I mean, from an from an individual's perspective. Um, I would, I would really just like to get the policies right. <laughs> and I, I know that's a vague statement, but you know, from an economist perspective, it means kind of getting those prices right 
figuring out if the prices are wrong and we can't fix them for whatever reason, can we send people nudges and signals uh, where they don't have to think too hard and they don't have to process too much information uh, that will just get them to behave better, right? The classic example is kind of sending people uh, information about their neighbor's electricity bills, right? And if I know my neighbor is being more energy efficient than I am, it tends to it tends to cause me to be more energy efficient, right? Mm. So those little things, right? I, I think those are the things where when it, people are just busy, they got a lot going on. Things like the One Health Initiative are telling people that it's it's more complicated uh, than what they previously thought when they weren't paying attention. So I think it's it's sort of just using the information that we learn from these One Health uh, efforts and other similar efforts to go into the policy. Um, but I think it makes it tough when then everybody feels like um, you know every every policy then goes to a vote, right? Because you feel like you need to know everything about this one policy uh, whatever it may be. Uh, and so you need to get informed about that one policy, but from, you know, from your day to day, you don't have to sit there and recalculate, you know, what is the impact of burning gasoline today versus another day or what have you. So I, I guess I'm just a little, people getting involved is, 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 is great. I would, I would, you know, as a busy person, it's, it'd be a lot better if I could just get those signals sent to me in a very easy to process type of way. And prices is a good way to do it, but there are others too. Yeah. That's a, that's an interesting, um, that, that idea of seeing your neighbor's, uh, use of things. Cause it, that's a, as someone who i I lack just conscientiousness generally. I'm just a, I'm a messy person. I don't, uh, I, I don't, I don't put a lot of thought into, uh, I'm, I spend a lot of my life on autopilot. Um, and I'm, I'm not always the most environmentally mindful in my, uh, day to day. And, uh, and it, so it's, you know, something like, I sometimes think about how much time I'm spending in the shower. Other times I don't, you know, mm -hmm. but, but, but if I, if I knew if I was getting something that was like, you are above average in your neighborhood and water consumption or something that I think that would be an interesting cue. I think that, helps, that's, yeah. and it's not, you know, it's not precise, right. It's, but it's just a, it's just a simple signal that you can easily kind of process without, thinking too much about it. And, it, and mm. the people who knock this stuff will be like, well, we don't want everyone to turn into kind of uh, calculating individuals that everything, everything I do from opening the door to taking a shower, what temperature do I set the, the my, my thermostat? Everything doesn't have to be calculated. Um, but if you're already concerned that, you know, maybe there's an environmental signal that you're not getting from the markets, then some signal is better than no signal at all, for sure. What are, what are some things that it, has there been anything that you've gotten excited about environmentally from um, from private industry uh, with uh, that's been done without any policy whatsoever? I mean, when you when you talked about uh, we didn't even touch on coal plants um, uh, that you mentioned in the beginning of the episode, but there are uh, with things like solar or electric cars or something. It, it feels like once in a while, regardless of whether policy is happening or not, there's innovation that comes along where it's like, well, this is actually just much more efficient than 
coal is, or this is, you know, it's kind of been that gradual fire was this nice source of energy. And then we, the humans have figured out more and more efficient ways of getting uh, uh, X units of power out of so much substance or whatever. And the, mm. this has kind of been a natural progression without policy. So has there been anything uh, that you've been excited about just from the private side of things? Oh yeah. I mean, I think the, the decline in the cost of solar panels, right. Is a big one. Um, so there was lots of innovation that went into trying to, uh, reduce the cost of solar panels over the past decade. They've dropped a ton. Um, and that was somewhat motivated by actual environmental pressure, but it was also motivated a lot by, I think the thought that in more environmental pressure was going to come in the future, uh, either from, either from regulators from through policy or people are just demanding this more. Um, mm -hmm. and so that, that I think people just saw early on that, um, pe people are going to want this. They're going to want cleaner forms of energy down the road. Um, and if we can, if we can corner the market now, then this would be a very good thing. So obviously that's one, um, uh, one place where that's come up and, and, you know, there's, there's some notion, of course, for, for certain things that the innovations come when you have some sort of way of, of certifying those innovations. So, um, you know, if you have, you know, building material or buildings, for instance, right, companies are choosing to go lead platinum or whatever it is now, right? Um, they're making lots of investments that they might not have otherwise made. Um, and they're coming up with a lot of innovations that wouldn't have otherwise been made in order to get that lead designation that they can put on the building and, and signal to people that, that, that this is a lead building. Right. Um, I don't know that they're necessarily always doing that to save money. Um, but it's, they're, they're doing it to kind of signal their, their intentions of trying to, uh, reduce energy usage or water usage or whatever it might be. Mm. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff going on, on kind of, uh, green financing that I think is kind of neat the way they've figured out how to, um, uh, create financial incentives for private companies to, uh, invest in different types of environmental, uh, um, preservation projects it may have nothing to do with what they're doing. Right. So it could be, uh, Chase Bank investing in habitat preservation uh, in New York, right? Um, it could be something like that. But those things where they've kind of figured out that, you know, these things provide a, a, a return in some way, um, and it may be a low return, but it's a relatively low risk return. Um, and so they've kind of figured out how to, how to create these, uh, these environmental assets in a way that that firms are actually choosing to invest in them, even though they may get no direct benefit from their production process at all. Right. It doesn't necessarily help them, uh, but they're mm. getting some sort of additional return. So carbon markets are a great way to think about this. So if you, if, if you get a carbon credit for owning forests in Montana, um, just by leaving the forest there, right. That becomes an additional asset that people are now investing in that have, no consideration about using it for real estate or timber or whatever, right? It's, it's just, mm. it's generating now carbon sequestration returns for that company. Um, and so those things are cool. Cause that's, that's obviously those are places where if you, if you create the incentive, then private companies will 
figure out where to come do these things and start investing in them on their own. Um, mm. So those, those types of things have been kind of cool. And those are kind of more broad things. Those aren't sort of one-off technologies or anything like that. But uh, those have been places where I see there's still a lot of potential for sort of creating the right incentives for private companies to make these investments uh, to, 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 to try to offset any environmental harm that their production process may be creating that they can't reduce in another way or that regulations may not force them to reduce. So uh, I keep on saying this is my last question, but re regarding that, are there things in terms of um, ways in which there's incentive to signal for corporations? I, it, it just made me think, just made me think about the idea of uh, organic or natural or GMO free and all of these things that don't actually mean anything really uh brass tacks but it, it's it's uh it, it's this nice little signal that consumers go ooh, that's natural and i don't want an acronym in my food um you know so are there things like that that are that are happening in terms of uh i, I guess corporations kind of uh, false signaling things, finding little ways of putting this little stamp of look how eco-friendly we are. Yeah. I mean, that I was, that was where I was going to go and I decided not to go down the organic food hole, but yeah, that's, a, that's where all of this started <laughs> was that there were lots of firms that were putting organic or all natural or whatever right. it might be on their packaging, which means nothing. Right. But people were right. paying a premium to get it. And so of course, what that ends up doing is it creates a disincentive for farmers who are actually engaging in organic practices, right? Because they right. have no way to signal, hey, I'm doing this right. That guy over there just put organic right, on his right. box, right? Exactly. So, you know, do you have these certifications have we've recognized now that there is a this there is now this desire by corporations to signal that they're green. Um, mm. the next step is to recognize that they can game the system, right? <laughs> and then yeah, figure yeah. out that, okay, these, these things that they're doing need to be certified by some third party to say that, Hey, they are doing it. Or it basically just squashes any incentive for anybody to actually correctly behave. Right. Um, mm -hmm. so you, you see this now where you have like USDA has an organic certification. Oregon tilth is another example of an organic certification that you have for food. Uh, they have similar certifications for timber that show that it's been raised in a sustainable level. And there's three or four different versions of timber certifications that promise to do different things. Right. You'll see more things. You'll see more of that show up um, because these these green measures are showing up in their, um, you know, their reports to stockholders where stockholders are coming back to these companies and saying, we want to see more green. you doing more green activities. And they'll list them in there, but there's no one who's actually certifying that they're doing what they're doing. Um, and so they'll, you'll see more of this because stockholders are going to demand, uh, hey, we really want to know that you're, we want this quantified. We don't want you to just say you went and bought some forest land in Montana and you didn't, you're not showing us what it actually did. Uh, so you'll see more of that moving forward for sure. And you've already heard some rings from this from uh uh, equity firms who are kind of specializing in being environmental equity firms that they want to see more proof that these things that they're saying, uh, firms are saying are green are actually green. Yeah.
that's true true cost and and true true benefit too you want to know what you're buying right you know that i i i want the organic thing i'm buying to actually be organic i i, I like i don't want the okay this technically isn't a cage when it's still a just as bad as the cage cages or whatever else so yeah that's... And i mean and i and, and to some extent i'm just contradicting what i said before because you've got you basically have to get the customer and the consumer to recognize that these things are good right so right it, it, it takes you know decades of kind of educating people about these are the things that are actually environmentally sound practices that you should be demanding of these companies right um mm. it's not enough to just say that they slap organic on their label or they say that it's there's some ingredient it's some ingredient free when the ingredient was never really in there to begin with right um mm -hmm. so it's it's more than that so there is some notion that you have to educate consumers to kind of know what it is that they're looking for for those certification mm -hmm. programs to work well this was a really fun conversation charles uh thanks so much for joining me you were a great guest i appreciate everything that you do um this is super fun could you uh, do you want to say anything about the one health initiative uh, before we leave just because they're the ones that put this together yeah so i i just want to say the thanks to all the people that are that are kind of organizing that uh that initiative it's 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 been super fun to be a part of it's not it, it's one of those and academia in general right we end up staying in these little uh silos and doing our own work and the One Health Initiative has been one of those really successful examples of where we've said, look, we can't solve any of these problems if everybody stays in their own silo. Mm -hmm. um, and we've got to figure out how to get people out of these silos and working together, even though in a lot of cases, you know, people have an incentive to stay in their own silo and do, you know, their economic work and their ecological work and their epidemiology work. But it works best when it all goes together. So, um you know, this stuff is super important for kind of all those examples I mentioned before, getting the prices right and getting uh, getting the, the policies right. Um, so without these things, we have zero hope of getting any of those policies right moving forward. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you. Charles Sims is the guest. Everybody, thank you so much for listening and being such wonderful, curious people. And we'll talk with you next week. <laughs>